And this is where we all come in. We are the creative people. And we have a poet this evening. We have Ron Carey. So Ron is a celebrated, award-winning poet. And he's going to recite uh, some of his poems from his third book of poetry. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the development of how his third book is slightly different from the other two collections. And we also have Francis Elliott. So Francis is a member of the Forget Me Not Choir. You might remember on week one we met Nora, who is the choir director of um, Forget Me Not. Uh, Francis is one of our members, and Francis is going to tell you a little bit about how the involvement of being in the choir with people who have dementia, who are caregivers, and other people just from the community, how we all just get along and talk about dementia as if it's the most normal thing in the world. Um, you're very welcome, find a seat. Thanks for coming back. So we're going to start with, and by the way, if you have any questions at all, we're here to take any questions you have about any aspect about brain health. And we, we learned on week one with Brian that brain health isn't the opposite of brain disease. Brain health is like physical health, heart health, mental health. It's just health. And, and why we separate it, I don't know. <laughs> because all of the things that are good for your brain are all the things that are good for your body, good for your heart, good for your mental health. One of those amazing things that is really good for your brain is social interaction, and that's exactly what we're doing here this evening. And because it is the evening, tonight's going to be a little bit more zen than last week was all up and bopping and dancing and the week before was singing. Tonight's going to be a little bit more calm because we're going to talk about writing, and exploring through uh, words and poetry, and we're going to have a few people just reciting some lovely poems. So I hope you'll enjoy the next couple of hours. So Ian, here. Thank you, Karen. Karen's one of what we call senior fellows. She spent a year with us as a fellow of the Global Brain Health Institute. And uh, this is a program to take people from all over the world, particularly from disadvantaged parts of the world, to I think there's 60 different countries now, ranging from the Congo to USA to Egypt, to all over the world with fellows who are all united in, like Karen, becoming creative about how we can help people keep their brains fit and healthy to stave off as much as possible some of the uh, afflictions that can afflict us, uh, loss of function and the changes that can happen as we get older, which are not inevitable. Um, and so we have Karen, who comes from a creative and marketing and business background. We have scientists, we have psychiatrists, we have neurologists, we have musicians. Um, from every 60 countries, and some of them are in America and California, some of them here in Dublin. And our job is to get people as optimistic about their brains as we are now about their hearts. Because I know when I was growing up, in Glasgow in the, in the 50s as a young boy and 60s. It was quite normal to hear that someone you know, their friend's father, usually the father had dropped dead in a heart attack. It was quite common. And you weren't really surprised, you were sad, you weren't surprised. 
Nowadays, that's much, much less common. And that's because, largely, not mainly because of medical advances, but because people have copped on. The science showed them that taking exercise, eating well, having your blood pressure checked, um, all of these things had a big, big effect on your heart health. And as a result of that, we have less than half the rate of cardiac deaths now than we did uh, 50 years ago. And we believe it's possible to do something very, very similar for the brain. <coughs> Not just as we get older, but throughout our lives, if we look after our brains, we'll uh, make our brains more robust and resilient in the face of the challenges that come to us throughout life, particularly together. So, and one of these things we can do, one of these things we can do that's most nourishing for our brains is to be involved with creative activities, involved in the arts, not as participants, but also as, as, as watchers. Dragging yourself out in a rainy, cold autumn night to come to something like this, that's what you're doing. You're nourishing your brains by doing this. Um, and I want to try and explain to you tonight, because I've got 16 minutes left, I want to explain to you tonight a bit about the science behind why being involved in the creative world, the arts, music, choirs, singing, dance, visual arts, poetry, why all these things, how they work powerfully in our brains. That's what I want to try and explain to you. So, um, the Cambridge Dictionary it defines creativity as this. The ability to produce or use original or unusual ideas. Okay? So I think that that definition allows us to put up there with Beethoven's amazing creation of a fifth piano concerto, that amazing burst of creativity allowed him to do that, with a funny conversation on a bus between two people where there's a whimsical interchange that's not just the usual cliche, but that allows us to talk about everyday stuff of everyday life and bringing a little bit of creativity into what we do in our interactions with other people. Because as Karen says, our interactions, our social interactions, is another equally powerful way of nourishing our brains. Other people really, really nourish our brains. And that's why coming together like you all are tonight is hugely good for your health. Yeah. The relationships you form, maintaining these relationships is really good. And that's creative activities often bring people together. Choirs, writing groups, um, going to the theater, going, going different types of activities, crochet, doing things together, creative things, 
is one of the best things you can do to your brain. And that's why it's a, a real privilege to have you all here tonight to talk about creativity and your brain. So, we'll give you a little exercise. I want you to try, I'm going to ask you to complete the sentence that I say, just to speak out the word. So. The early bird catches the There are many ways to skin a Out of sight. Now, I'm going to challenge you now. I want you to try, I'm going to give you these three sentences again. And I want you to try and complete them with something, a nonsense word, unrelated to the normal completion. So I don't want you to say, sorry, word. I don't want you to say cat. And I don't want you to say mine. I want you to say something completely, madly, whimsically different. Just not. Let's try. And shout out. The early bird catches the bus. Bus. There are many ways to skin a Brilliant. Out of sight, out of So what did it feel like? What did it feel like if you the second response rather than the first. Oh, yeah. I had to think about it. Yeah. yeah. Made you smile. So, the thing about our brains is they work as what we call prediction machines. Prediction machines. Our whole life, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we do, is based on this incredible way that our brains work, which is before the thing happens, before we see the thing, before we hear the thing, our brain makes a prediction of what it's going to be. Okay? And then when the thing happens, our brain gives a little tick. Okay? Yeah, that's what it's going Okay? Um, I say to my neighbor, how are you doing? My brain says he's going, he's going to say fine. <laughs> Good. Tick. And when our brain gives that little tick, nothing much happens in our brain. It's just, okay, the world is as I thought it was going to be. Okay? Now, supposing I ask my neighbor, how are you doing? And he bursts into tears and says, terrible. <laughs> That's not what I predicted. And that puts our brain into a quite different state and switches on parts of the brain that would not be switched on otherwise if we're predictions are confirmed. Okay? Sudden, and that's a bit like what you have to do to not complete the sentence with worm. Or with something else. And what you're doing there, you're switching on a part of the brain called the frontal lobes. 40% of the cortex <coughs> of your brain, the last part of your brain to wire up. 
as you grow up, it doesn't wire up fully. It doesn't connect to the rest of the brain fully until you're about 25. Which is why insurance premiums are so big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Because a frontal lobes, what do they do? They're the parts of our brain that deal with new things, with unexpected things, with unknown things, like planning into the future like setting goals for ourselves, like dealing with situations that are not familiar. And that's what makes us human, that ability to think about things that don't yet exist and to work to create them, to solve problems. But they only get switched on in certain situations. Most of the time, our brain's in prediction mode where you don't really need your frontal lobes as much, like saying the early bird catches the Worm. You don't really need your frontal lobes to say worm because it's, 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 it's in this prediction uh, carriage, train carriage rolling along. So, what you have to do to not say worm or not say cat or not say mind is first of all you have to stop yourself doing the obvious predicted response. Okay? That's called inhibition, and your frontal lobes are big at inhibition, they're good at inhibition, but they're not a lot of inhibition. That's why if you drink, or a few drinks, the frontal lobes' ability to inhibit gets reduced by the alcohol, and you sometimes say things or do things you regret after. <laughs> but the other thing, when you're trying to come up with a different word than worm, the other thing is to, you have to generate a new idea, a new response. You can't rely on habit, okay? You can't rely on habit, or another word is cliche. You can't rely on cliche. Um, you have to come up with something new, and that really takes your front of And that's what art does to us and creativity and all the activities that they're involved with, that's what they do for us and to us. They make us see things anew. The poetry we'll hear from Ron um, later, poets and artists help us break through the prediction machine's cliches to see things differently. And that switches on parts of our brain and causes our brain to produce certain very, very nourishing chemicals for our brain that actually are hugely uh, nourishing of the connections in the brain and help build our brain structures. Because when things that you don't expect, as long as they're not too stressful, things that are surprising, new, different, cause part of your, a tiny part of your brain, deep in the middle of your brain, to secrete this, this pharmaceutical agent, natural one called noradrenaline, which if, if you could buy in the chemist would be the most amazing drug uh, in the world because it nourishes your brain pathways and it lifts your mood and it makes you more alert. But we have a way of stimulating that drug and that's by do, create creative activities, 
new activities, social interactions, meeting different people. All of these things, singing, for instance, having to learn a new song, being exposed to new challenges involved in learning music, for instance, dancing. All of these things nourish our brains in very practical ways, more effectively than any drug you could take that your doctor could prescribe. So when people say there's no way of preventing dementia, it's not true. And there's nothing guaranteed. Some people will get, get dementia, I'm afraid, no matter what they do. Nevertheless, I am certain the science is quite clear that my chances of developing dementia will be reduced, or at least will be pushed back in time to the point where hopefully my body gives out before my brain does. If I keep my brain nourished and creative activities are one of the critical ways of doing this, that millions of people can do the Bealtaen Baltimore festivals that happen every year that actually were started up by one of our other senior fellows, Dominic Campbell, 20 years ago. Um, this engagement by us all together in creative activities is one of the most effective ways of uh, building our brain's resilience and building our brain health. Now, um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with this. You go on holiday to a place for the first time. You've never been there before, maybe for a week. And many of you have noticed that the first day or two of the holiday seem to last forever. It seems like the holiday is going to go on forever. And you say, my goodness, I've only been here two days. It seems like I've been here two weeks. Many of you have experienced that. And at the end of the week, Spitting up. That happens with life as well, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Think of your childhood, you know, it's in the endless days, now another year's gone. Why is that? Well, it's because of attention, our attention. And it's because of this prediction machine mode of our brains. Because when you go to a new place, Everything's different. The light's different. The architecture's different. The smells are different. The <coughs> so your, your frontal lobes are, are being switched on all the time. You can't rely. Because you can't predict, you're having to pay attention. And you're having to bring your full consciousness to what is going on. And that, when you're doing that, when your brain is out of prediction mode, Time slows down. But once you become more familiar with the sights and the sounds and the smells, your brain says, ah, I can predict this now. I know what I'm going to smell when I come out of the hotel in the morning. <laughs> I know what I'm going to eat. That taste, I'm not familiar with it. And it can relax into prediction mode. <laughs> and that course, the frontal lobe say, oh, I can take a rest now. And time starts to speed up because the brain's a bit lazy in prediction. So the great thing about singing, dancing, visual arts, poetry, writing, uh, conversations, discussions, 
all the interactions where we are doing things that's not easy to predict because they're challenging us a bit, they're not familiar. All of these slow down time as much as they nourish our brain. They bring us more consciously, mindfully into the present uh, moment. And, um, you know, there's some amazing statistics. So uh, this was a study done of older English people um, over a 14-year period. And they found that even doing activities like going to museums, art galleries, exhibitions, the theatre, concerts and operas. So that's just going to things, not necessarily participating in them. If you did that even once or twice a year, you'd have 14% chance, less chance of dying in the next 14 years. If you did it every few months or more, okay, you'd have 31% lower risk of dying. And that was taking into account people's health, their socioeconomic status and everything. So there's this correlation between getting out there and going to the pavilion, <laughs> you know, theatre, or, or just going out to that choir, just doing, doing these things, there's an immense effect on your health, to a great extent because of the effects on your brain, of this nourishment, of this, of this not relying on the prediction and cliché uh, machine. And finally, i just say this. Um, Having, having a sense of purpose in life is as good for you, for your health, as not smoking. Not having a sense of purpose is as bad for your health as smoking. A sense of purpose and a feeling that there's something to get up for in the morning, or some, you have something to contribute, or something to, to live for. And I would say to you that in being involved in the creative world, the arts, even just as a, a spectator, even just, even better if you can participate a little, it gives you a purpose in life. You don't need to say, what, what's my life for if you're involved in creativity? It generates its own purpose. And that in itself is incredibly health-giving effects. So just to say thank you all for coming here tonight and for, uh, and it's a, a real privilege to be uh, having part of the Global Brain Health Institute and to be part of the Lili Rathdown's amazing program here tonight. Thank you very much. Now, Ian has written this amazing book called How Confidence Works and I asked him if he would bring some tonight and he's way too modest uh, and they're in bookshops. I have a copy. If you're interested in hearing more about all these amazing things, tricks you can do for your own brain to keep your brain nice and sharp, and also how to improve your confidence, you can. it's all in the pages of this book. But one of the amazing things about confidence is that you're as good as you tell yourself you are. And if you're listening to that little, you know, that little voice in your head saying, actually you can't do art, you're rubbish, or you can't sing, you should mind. You know, and if you have those voices in your head from maybe you were in primary school, we were all amazing at everything. Can you remember how brilliant we were at singing and dancing, we were all great at art, we were all brilliant at sport. And then you go into secondary school and then a lot of it gets knocked out of you. You know, and you're told, you know, no, not like this, like this. No, in the choir, don't sing, you, you're like a crow. 
And I remember being told I was like, well, <laughs> but that didn't stop me because I liked singing. And now I'm in a choir, but you know, once you learn how to sing properly, that cronus becomes a, a singer. You know, and there's, there's all sorts of things that we're able to do that we didn't think we could do. Because you have to learn that little bit of confidence and you have to kind of erase a lot of those voices in your head and, and start putting in some nice positive ones. And I heard a statistic, I'm not sure if I heard it in GBHI or not, is that for every one bad thing that you hear about yourself, you actually need to hear three more good things. That's how powerful the bad brain is. So if something happens to you and you start feeling, oh, I can't do that because it's raining, I won't go out because if I go out, it's going to be slippy and then I'm going to fall and then I'm going to break a hip. And then, you know, if you start going down that road, you won't go anywhere and you won't do anything. Ah, oh, it's half six, oh no, I'm not going to week three, it's too late, because by the time that's over, and this is going to happen, you know, once you start going down that road, it's very hard to pull yourself back. So you have to kind of reframe it a little bit, say, half six, oh, that's great. That means I can do loads of other stuff during the day, because I get my day back, and I can still do this in the evening. So it's, it's all about finding whatever little bit of positivity is in whatever the, the, the day changes. I'm just back from Italy. We were in Italy in the weekend with my choir. Uh, not to forget me, that's the other part. And it lashed rain all weekend. Oh, <laughs> we're in Lake Arda and it never rained so hard. Oh, our brother does there too. Really? And another friend of ours. In the town of Byron Oh, that's mad. Because there was uh, all sorts of choirs there from all around uh, the world. Mostly, it uh, has to be said, from Eastern Europe. So what should we do? We went swimming. <laughs> because on the basis that it was already wet <laughs> and we went and there was thunder, there was lightning, the rain was hopping off the water so we decided we were supposed to go for a rehearsal, we had the rehearsal in the water instead. <laughs> we had the best crack and so we were on the plane on the way home on Monday night, we were saying favourite memory of the weekend, we did loads of stuff, it was actually the thunder, the lightning and the singing the harmony in the air. Unbelievable. But that's how you're kind of turning what could have been a bit of a disastrous weekend weather-wise into something that just become an amazing experience to do that. And that's just reframing. And this book, uh, How Confidence Works, is full of all of that reframing. On poetry, I just wanted to share with you a tiny little piece about why tonight is a little bit about poetry. My mother had Alzheimer's and uh, the more advanced her Alzheimer's became, she lost the thread of stories. But she never lost the thread of poetry. And all she needed was the first line of a poem. And once she got the first line, she was on her bike and going down the hill. She was brilliant. And as soon as she started to say the poem, she became very successful. And once you're feeling successful, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And you can feel very isolated in a group if people are telling new news or they're telling a new story about something and you can't quite follow the story. But if you can, with somebody who has dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, I know there's lots of different types of dementia, but my mom had Alzheimer's. And if you can give them the first line of a poem and she knows the rest of it, her smile is coming back and she's feeling great. And by the time she gets to the end of it, it's like, nailed it. <laughs> and, and they're the kind of things that are very important. And particularly at the end of her life, when she was in the hospice, she used to conduct poetry. So when she could no longer speak, she could still conduct. And one of her favourite ones to conduct was uh, Robert Frost, uh, Snow Eating. And we all know the end of that one. And miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. 
And the smile on her face when she got to the second line of the miles to go. And I was like, okay, now I can have another little rest. Because she got there. So poetry is a very important part of my life. I love poets, I love poetry. And Ron Carey, a very special poet, is going to tell us a little bit about he got involved in poetry. Ron. half poems, half songs, walking around the kitchen, telling us stories, and then forgetting about them, and then telling us some other stories. And I think that's where, because there's nowhere else uh, the poetry might have came I think it was my mom. And, and she had Alzheimer's at the end. And unfortunately, she didn't recognize me, but she still had bits of poetry. Yeah, I was born in Limerick and I've lived in Dublin all my life, but as I was saying to Karen, I'm still from Limerick. <laughs> uh, when I go down to Limerick, they don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, when I retired, I started to do a course, um, the Open University course. Everyone know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I did a diploma course in that with uh, Nessa O'Mahony, if anyone was Nessa. Mm -hmm. And then I sent away my poetry to Philip Gross in the University of South Wales. And he asked me to come over and talk about doing the masters, which I did. And it took me a long time because I wasn't very academic. And I got it done. I felt like I was the father of all the people that were sitting around. <laughs> and, um, but my poetry, and it's really about the, the creative part of, the, of my life that I want to talk to you about. My poetry has, has brought me beyond my, uh, my focus. Um, I think I was in a, a kind of a haven't got those, uh, what Marine is it? Yeah. I don't think I had those frontal lobes working at all. But when I started taking poetry seriously, then I really got going. So I started off, and my first book was called Distance, and I sent it to everybody. Everybody. And I got nowhere. <laughs> so everybody sent it back saying, well, you know, uh, it's, it's good, but it's kind of old fashioned. And uh, eventually, Revival Press in Limerick published it for me. And it was shortlisted for the Forward Prize, Best First Collection, UK and Ireland. Oh. So after that, I didn't listen to anyone. <laughs> so I just want to read you a few poems to give you an idea of what uh, poetry and write. But, I picked ones that I think you like, rather than very poetic kind of poetry, if, if you call um, Writing for my grandchildren. Everybody seems to like this poem, and it's called Little One.
little one. We have kept our love in waiting for your coming, little one. While your journey from the future took you nine months round your sun. Welcome to our planet of blue and green and gold. In this perfect imperfection, your story will be told. The gifts I have to give you are the gifts that were given me. The splendor of the mountains, the blue majestic sea, a crunch of snow in winter, an apple summer's day, a kiss of love at bedtime, and faith enough to pray. My final gift is poem, whatever is its claim, we, I wrote to show we loved you before we knew your name. Like everyone else, grandchildren can make me do anything. <laughs> so, um, my poetry is a lot about um, interaction with my family and my kids and going back over my life. And uh, one day I decided to take my son. We have, I have four children and one boy. And I thought, I'd take him around. I was a sales engineer. So I thought I'd take him with us and we'd go around and I'd show him what I did for a living. And I'll get the idea now. Fathers and sons, you already had that judging look that boys of seven or eight acquire. You've killed a bird, Daddy. In the streets of Kilkenny, a sparrow hung from the mouth of our car. I removed its tiny body. I'm sorry, I said. This wasn't the memory I wanted for you. This was the day to show you my work, to look inside that box of sharpened knives. In the engineering shop, your face blazed in wonder, row and row of huge machines, motors roaring, chained by electric cables, while the machinists showed off their skills. The boss waded across a river of noise. We crashed out into the sunshine, and you laughed at the surprise of silence. For lunch, we went brazenly to McDonald's. Don't tell your mother. <laughs> Our drive home was all smiles. You ran to your mother at the door. Mommy, Daddy killed the bird. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a book out now, it's called Songs for Older Life. And I had loads of reasons for writing it. Um, I'm running uh, creative writing courses and I wanted to encourage people to take up writing of any description, not necessarily poetry. Um, people come along to the course and say, I can't write, I just don't know how to get started. A blank page just freaks me out. So I always say, write down one word 
Now put a word in front of it, put a word behind it, now write sentence. And after a while, they're writing. And as they get down, they find out what they're writing about. They don't know at the beginning what they're writing about, they just start writing. And then get rid of all the stuff that's got you writing and just use what you're writing. So anyone can write, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. But anyone can actually write. And I'd encourage everybody to have a go at it. I was well into my 60s when I got my book published. And I convinced my brother, who's a very good poet, to get his book published. He's 70. And he got his book published three weeks ago. <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to celebrate creative individuals who blossomed in the afternoons, twilights, and late evening of their life. I'm trying to shine a light so that older people who feel stymied by their age can see how others have reached their own potential late in life, or how they kept on following their dreams. This book highlights men and women who plowed on sometimes through all sorts of diversity, to hold on to a vision of who we could be, and why should we ever give up on who we can be. Some of them are famous and not, some are not well known. <coughs> Inspired by their artistic lives, I wrote each of them poem. So the first one is um, a woman from, well, she's um, near Nina. She, it's not quite the Nina, but it should have been Nina. And Margie came home from school at the age of 17 to take over the family farm. Her father was ill as a result of wounds and gas from the First World War. Margie returned to writing and published her first novel in her late 50s. Marjorie's book, Peter Stone, was launched in December 2019 at the age of 89. It was her 18th published book. <coughs> Breakfast of Champions. When your father saw the Ghost Brigade move across the fields, he knew it was your time. You left the school that boarded up your true nature and began to take on the farm the way David took on Goliath. And when your father sent you to the fair, you went with eyes and checked with quiet, and you returned a star rising, still only 17. A woman's courage flowering inside you, cool and steady as the quietness of a quiet horse. Your father kissed your cheeks hello, as if it was goodbye. A legacy of crisp tanners was enough to jump the first fence, and you were off and running. Fifty years of love for horses and farming, and then the books began to drop like late lambs into the lap of your life. But there are nights when the world is brittle with frost. You miss the old companionships. In the morning, kettle jumping on the hob when it was better to have breakfast the night before.
Another one was Mary Wesley. Has ever, anyone ever read Mary Wesley's book? No? Um, at the age of 58, Mary was left destitute at the death of her husband. And she published the first adult novel age 70. Mary was a woman before her time, and the chamomile lawn, sure you heard that, chamomile lawn, set last summer before the Second World War. It was her second novel, her best known and most successful book. The House by the Sea. Charming as one of Mary's naive young men, the lawn stretches its legs from the house to the sea, its camomile toes just reaching the water's edge. Here they feast and settle in their beauty. It's a godless, bracing beauty, and the only the hammer of war can fashion. Whether it's the last or the coming war, it only matters to the survivors. And Mary is a survivor which makes her gentle with her loves, tender as morning flesh, when the lips smart from the strife of kisses and dreams are stuffed out on a bed of giggles. Mary goes softly from room to room, chasing the happy and unhappy ghosts out of the remembrance of summer's past. But when she tells her stories, stories wherein she strips herself bare to the desire the reading public hardly know which box to put her in. For, let's face it, being old, how can she know passion? <laughs> or if she does, would it be more dignified to pretend otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> in it because they're from Limerick. <laughs> and if I didn't, the whole of Limerick would kill. So, um, you all know Frank's story, which his mother rejects totally, which I think is very Irish. Um, Rayma. Of course, you want to hear about the rain. That's all everyone wants to talk about. As if the rain that fell into my childhood was a different kind, a brutal fantasy or thing. But if you're quiet for a minute, I'll tell you. The difference was my rain stayed forever. I could still hear it beat, beat its unceasing, unceasing homesick drum on the sidewalks of America. Nothing could dispel it, not love, not truth, not distance, not memory, not forgiveness. But each man has only so many heartbeats in him. And he must lead his life by the nose, or sit on a bar stool and watch the world go by. So I wrote out my despair and made it famous. And the world of God amazed. Not there wasn't greatest misery everywhere but that a man could articulate his circumstances so intensely, reach so far back and sift through the long, dead and eternal ashes of his tribe.
Dave Brubeck. Um, my wife and I went to see Dave Brubeck when we were in New York. Just drop him. Just drop him down. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was terrific. It was just one of those nights that you remember autograph. Now, this is the thing about Dave. Dave studied music at the College of the Pacific in California and was almost expelled when they discovered that he couldn't cite the music. At, um, in 1942, he was drafted into the army. While in the army, he created one of the first racially integrated jazz bands, the Woodpack. Dave formed the Dave Brubeck Quartet in 1951 with Paul Desmond. Together they wrote their biggest hit, Take Five. He continued to play well into old age, performing then to 2001 at the age of 91. A month after getting a pacemaker. Dave Brubeck died at age 92, and Kathy, my wife and I, saw him perform at the Blue Note, a famous jazz club. <laughs> the Blue Note. We are not really jazz fans, not really. Though we do like jazz, but we're not really jazz fans, not really. <laughs> we know our Duke Bellatin from our Louis Armstrong, but not our Miles Davis from our Chet Baker. We like Dave Gruber. And we do like what music and slabs of meat that recline and sizzle drip over a cake the size of an American football. <laughs> with fries in a fat bowl as unctuous as a lover's fingers and green still weather wet in the market in Union Square. Well, it's your birthday after all. Or maybe mine. And it's exciting to hail a cab and tell the driver, Greenwich Village, please, the blue note, as if we had the least clue where that was. <laughs> then Dave Brubeck makes his way onto the stage. My doctors tell me I'm rushing things, he says, a little breathlessly, reaching the piano bench, and then proceeds to reduce the whole place to a pub he could take home in a doggy bag. <laughs> Eyes. 
her aunt, who from her earliest youth had kept a strict regard for truth, attempted to believe Matilda, the effort very nearly killed her, <laughs> and would have done so had not she discovered this infirmity. For once, towards the close of day, Matilda, growing tired of play, and finding she was left alone, went tiptoe to the telephone and summoned the immediate aid of London's noble fire brigade. Within an hour, the gallant band were pouring in from every hand, from Putney, Hackney, Downs, and Bow, with courage high and hearts aglow. They go roaring through the town, Matilda's house is burning down. Inspired by frantic cheers and now proceeding from the frenzy crowd, they ran their ladders through a score of windows and a whole and took the cool pains to sight the pictures up and down the house until Matilda's aunt succeeded in showing them they were not needed. <laughs> and even then she had to pay to get the men to go away. <laughs> it happened that a few weeks later her aunt was off to the theatre to see that interesting play, The Second to Mrs. Tanquery. She had refused to take her niece to see that entertaining piece. A deprivation just and wise to punish her for telling lies. <laughs> that night, a fire deep break out. <laughs> you should have heard Matilda shout. You should have heard her scream and bawl and throw the windows up and call to people passing the street. The rapidly increasing heat, encouraging her to obtain their confidence. For every time she shouted, they all answered. I'm simply surrounded by lovers. Since Dad made this fortune in the land, should they come in in droves like the plumbers to ask for me bound? There's clerks, guards, and teachers. Some sandy, some black as a crow. Ma says you get used to the creators. But I don't know. <laughs> the convent is in a commotion to think of me taking the spouse. They wonder I have the notion of taking the vows, which is a simple life and a quiet one, and keeps you from going below. As a girl, I thought I might try it. But I don't know. <laughs> There's none but me set to look after. And marriage, it fills me with fears. I think I'd have less of a laughter and more of tears. I'll not be a slave like my mother, with six of us all in a row, even one little baby's a bother. There's a lad that's taken me fancy, and though he's a little lame, I know marriage is terrible chancy. I chance with him. <laughs> oh, he's coming tonight. How I tingle from the top of my head to my toes. I'll tell him I'd rather be single. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Carey, please join us. So Michael is a member of Forget Me Not Part, he's also a poet. His 
started is Terry. No relation. As it turns out. And uh, Michael has come here with his son. Microsoft and those steps. And Michael has recited a number of poems for us at the choir. And there's one in particular I love. You're also Michael. Love to meet you. Michael, do you want to take the um, the mic? Yeah. Can everybody hear? Just in praise of the spider. The spider, the spider with his weaving scales, flows silk and strand through broad and tread the line and hit the point, a string of curls from wire to branch. This hammock shows the finest lace, a beaded lattice hung in space, crystal dropped thrown in a row, stretched and drawn like titan bow, a wisp of three with silver catch, finally tuned to clearing match. Who would have thought one so small was master weaver of them all? <laughs> My education started in 1939 and then in 1949. Fifth standard National School of first, And that's the only form of education I ever had. So this is the poem of My sister. <coughs> this morning, my sister. <coughs> um, my mother had to take some sort of morning job cleaning, so that to enable to do that, she was she had to something to mind her, the youngest daughter, which was me, three, two brothers, three boys altogether. So I was the one who picked for that, took out the middle sister, to dress her, comb her hair, wash her, give her breakfast, take her by the hand and bring her to school. <clears throat> but during that time, my mother had a piece of navy material, this is part of the poem, piece of navy material in the, in the drawer, so she could say she was going to make a dress for the one with the girl she had, but she had no dress-making experience or anything like that, so she decided to make a dress, no such a thing as patterns around them. So she decided to make a dress, but it wasn't very, wasn't very good, it was pretty basic. And to embellish it, she put a little navy piece of material, so to embellish it, she put little excess around the, the collars on the sleeves, trying to make it look nice, decorative. And the fellows also came as Oklahoma came out around that time. <clears throat> and uh, over the beautiful morning comes in the sun. So this is where, this is it. Go to school. Morning and Mike are going to school. January morning with your helmet basin. Dapping sunlight through flowery haste. Closed eyes, pushed lips in anticipation. Salt watery cloth on a primitive face. Comb falling freely through gossamer hair. 
angel like offering my friend littleness. As I tie a bow above my bed so fair, you have crisscrossing red threading navy blue dress. Porridge tumbling from stirabout pot with brotherly care as I go. Sister blowing your breakfast so hot, leaving twelve, and she only four. Bonnet and coat of crimson red hangs by her side as I button her up. Smiling, the sun shining white on her head, shiny blue eyes like china blue cups. Then down to Bishop's feet, past Jacob's horses, seeing all what a beautiful morning, holding her hand near the Carmelite church as we turned to fight fires for our learning. I call the sunken heart only quite a glow, so they can imagine Glistening <clears throat> stones of burnished gold, reflections of your face each morn. Memory in its many folds holds sunny rock pools ever worn. You've stripped the rocks and tombs and trees with bouncing youthful grace. Each stride you take you aim to please with light gray eyes and laughing face. You rush between the sandaling, then race them to the sea. White crested waves on surging green, you swell the heart of me. You wrote in sands your name and mine, our love the world to sing. We lay behind the sunscreen, my young love and me. On that beach the sun may burn, if you're in no man's land. Like the tide, the heart can turn. And sink into the sand. The arctic cairn was blown off course, or once it soared above, now wanders like the albatross, for he has lost his love. So when along the strand you start a search for copper bed, for cottons live to warm the heart, be careful where you thread, for in that bed you may find a weak or sinking heart, the one that beat for her was blind. So drift into the dark. But when you delve, don't drive too deep, for you may pierce the heart. Still pleasure in its soul it keeps, a bitter sweet that never parts. Oh. <laughs> I do want to go down. Grow up on Bishop Street. We tried a paper ball with spring and scuffing from it kicked. Ran freaking halls from Kevin Street, where many of all was tricked. We skipped and played the Livio and swung around the pole and hopped and shocked at Piggy Bed and Marvis too, we know. All walked the road to Marion along the line of Fram, when all pushing more in, we holding on to Fram. Took the beach for coppins, left holes along the strand that sent the sandy salty water shifting in the sand. To save the summer leather, 
ran barefoot in the heat and kissed the girls and never told. And then the bishops went, from the deadly dollar twice the tube of Mordecai, with nets before the Grand Canal and fished it near and far. Boxed the York Street Boxing Club and Rat Wines boxed the fox. Fox carpet logs in New Street brought forth back from the docks. Hard bread and covered water collect from each house home and four pounds for each bucket to piggeries to sell. So papered and crossed Kevin's feet to dial as a corner shop, while Wilson bought on clothes and rags, but never paid the tops. A man in the name bought tin cans from anybody who came. Another man was handled but handled on and sold them all again. With four pence in the Camden and four pence in the Oaks, so a bared man in her evening gown, so Bogart in his tucks. A stair danced on the ceiling, the ginger on the floor, and Tarzan swam the anvil as Jane watched from the shore. <laughs> With beyond here in Europe, an illusion on the screen, we came through our emergency for we were in between. Surrounded up our ration books for half an ounce of tea, and rushed across the country, the land, just to see. And we, like many others, Moved to higher ground and set us in the foothills for Cronin we were round. Mm -hmm. And now he's 88. And you're still so 88. I'm 88. I'll be 89 this Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, no formal education. I was the fifth standard. And 14 years ago, the fifth standard. Never did any school. Anything I learned is taught myself to uh, some singing and everything. It was, from my experience, everybody's different. But, but from my experience, it was just purely through hearing. I remember saying, so how did they, how did, this is an old man, I was saying, how did they come to the right? How, how come my where did it come from? And it just struck me, thinking of my father, he used to read, he was one of the very young, he loved poetry, and he used to read poetry, and he said, you hear it, wait, this is a phrase, it's not so good. It's enthusiastic. But it was always, I was dissection. There's no such a thing as dissection now. The world was filled with stupid, stand over there. That was what you were calling me in my days. But, the, but one thing that came back to me when I was trying to learn was sound, sound, sound. I was never the written word, so not the business. Never the written word, just the sound of his voice saying things and the rhymes and patterns. And to read maybe, to read a story every night, maybe the pattern of Colin, maybe rather than uh, others, but you know, a bit of shaft. But, but there's always the sound. And only came back to me down the ring. All this came back. I saw all those years, the sound, purely the sound. So, you can do anything. I'm not known now, because 
It's like life is only started on eighty eight. People talk about, oh, you're eighty, you know, how can you get to bed? never cross my mind like that. Get out and walk every day, as you were saying, exercise is the most important thing you can do better than any topic. I'm encouraged to take exercise because you're seeing different things and you're making people come to one another the other day. And then, as I say, I interviewed her. <laughs> and it came out at the end. She says, my, my father said, where are you from? I took your name, Tracy, she said. She said, I said, where are you from? I said, where are your parents from Dublin? She says, no, actually, my mother from Dublin. My father's from Tipperary, she said. I said, what's your maiden name? So she's Tracy. And she said, my father, she said, I, I had, a, I had a brother, and he was a teacher with my friends, she said, I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs>